bring this back down to where normal people live. <laughs> and ask you tonight, if you would, please, to open your Bible to the book of Job. Job chapter uh, 32 is where we're going to start tonight. Job chapter 32. For about 30 years, I uh, worked on the staff of the First Baptist Church of Hammond and Howells Anderson College, and in addition to that, traveled oh, 10, 15, 20, 25 times a year and spoke in different churches. And now for the last, I've lost track of exactly how many, but about 10 or 11 years, maybe 12 now, I've spoken anywhere from 45 to 65 times a year, uh, that many different churches per year. So over about 40 years now, altogether traveling and speaking. And I just can't remember any service that encouraged my heart more than this morning to be here this morning and see the building as full as it was and to see all those teenagers here and uh, so many visitors and people getting saved and whoa, what an exciting morning it was for me personally I you know I don't know if my being here blessed you or not but my being here blessed me <laughs> I really I really enjoyed it I like my preaching no I'm just kidding <laughs> But, but uh, I, I really, really was encouraged uh, this morning by the service. And I just thought that the young people did such a marvelous job this morning overall as a group. I, I know one or two got up and walked around a little bit, you, you know. But, but for public school kids that don't go to church a whole lot, I just thought they did a great job this morning. I was so proud of them and so pleased. And, and uh, so praise the Lord for what God's doing here in your church. Job chapter 32 is where we're going to begin in just a few moments. I would assume that most all of us that are in an evening service like this are fairly familiar with Job. He was a, uh, uh, one of the richest men in his part of the world in his lifetime. He was also one of the wisest men in his part of the world in, that, in his lifetime. And one day God and Satan were actually having a conversation about Job. They were talking to each other about Job. And Satan accused Job to God and he said to God, yeah, sure, anybody would love you if you were as good to them as you are to Job. And God said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do, Satan. I'll let you do anything you want to to Job except kill him. He said, and then we'll see if he still loves me or not. And so Satan took away his health. Satan took away his wealth. All ten of Job's children died at one time. And then Job had three friends that came to visit him. And it seems to me that they were somewhat sincere when they first came. And they came to comfort Job in the fact that he was going through all this suffering. But as it turned out, they wound up condemning him about as much or more than they comforted him, if they comforted him hardly any at all. And the first 30, 31 chapters of the book of Job basically is a long, drawn-out conversation between these three friends and Job. And they're giving their opinions back and forth as to why Job is going through all this suffering and why it's all happening and so forth. And most of us are fairly familiar with that part of the story. But there is a fifth character in the story that we sometimes overlook. There's Job and then his three friends, that's four. But there's a fifth member of the cast in the story and his name is Elihu 
And Elihu is the youngest of the five. We're going to see that in just a few moments as we read this portion of the scripture. And I want to tonight focus on something that relates to this young man by the name of Elihu. So let's begin in chapter 32 and verse 1. So these three men ceased to answer Job. His original three friends, they, they have now finished this big long conversation they've had that's lasted over many days, maybe even a few weeks' time. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzzite, of the kindred of Ram against Job, was his wrath kindled. Notice in that one verse it mentions his wrath twice because he justified himself rather than God. Now verse 3. Also against the three friends was his wrath kindled. Three times now Elihu's wrath has been mentioned because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now Elihu had waited till Job had spoken because they were elder than he in a moment, we're going to see that that doesn't mean that they were just, uh, a, a, you know, a week older. They were just six months older. They were just a year or two older. There was a big gap here. Job and his three friends were basically in the same generation. And then you've got this younger man who's much younger than all four of them. And it's told us so far three times that this young man, his wrath is kindled against Job and against all three of his friends. All right, now let's continue reading uh, in verse uh, 40. Uh, go back to, uh, back, to, back to verse 4. Now, Elihu had waited, waited to speak, uh, till Job had spoken because they were elder than he. So in verse 5, when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, then his wrath was kindled four times. Okay, I'm beginning to get the impression this kid's lost his temper. I mean, I mean, he's he's out of control here. You know, he's he. It four times it's talked about how angry and upset he is. Now, verse six, and Elihu the son of Barakel the Buzzite answered and said, "I am young, and ye are very old." So see, he's he's uh, he's uh, pointing out the fact that there's a big gap here between their age. Wherefore I was afraid and durst not or dare not show you mine opinion. I said. Days should speak, or those who have lived more days than I have should speak. And multitude of years should teach wisdom. Elihu is admitting that from the beginning of this, he understood that because these old other men were older than him, he'll let them speak first. And he, he was admitting here that in the beginning, he, he realized that because they had lived longer than him, they knew some things about life he didn't know. They had some wisdom he didn't have yet. And so he ought to let them speak and he ought to just be quiet. Okay, let's continue reading. Verse 7. But I said they should speak and multitude of years should teach wisdom. Verse 8. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth him understanding. So this young man is saying, but... God has told me what I should say. Verse 9. Great men are not always wise. Neither do the aged understand judgment. All right, if you look at me for a moment, I'll explain something here. 
Sometimes we make the mistake of almost just letting our Bible fall open wherever it happens to and without even looking, just pointing at a verse and read that one verse and expect to understand what the Bible's teaching us. <laughs> you wouldn't understand the newspaper if you read it like that. If you just let it fall open and pointed at a sentence and read that one sentence, you wouldn't understand what the newspaper was saying. You can't understand your Bible that way either. And when you pick out one verse and try to decide what the Bible is teaching based on that one verse, you, you, you rarely ever get it right. For example, in this case, you have to know who's speaking, the youngest man of five. You have to understand who's speaking, the guy who has lost his temper. <laughs> you have to understand who's speaking here. And, and he's saying, great men are not always wise Neither do the aged understand judgment. Or what he's saying is the aged people don't know how to make decisions. Now, the Bible is not contradicting itself. All throughout the Bible, we hear, see passages that talk about the younger people learning wisdom from the older people. I mean, how many times did Solomon say to his son while he was writing the book of Proverbs, my son, give me thine heart. My son, hear thy mother's commandments. Forget not my commandments. You know, over and over and over throughout the Bible. And the Bible is not all of a sudden in this one place contradicting itself and saying wise older men don't know what they're talking about. What the Bible is doing here, it's recording the fact that a young man who has lost his temper made that statement. It's not saying that statement's true. It's saying a young man made that statement. All right, let's continue. Let's go back to verse 9. Great men, this young man said, great men are not always wise, neither do the aged understand judgment. Therefore I said, this is Elihu speaking, hearken to me. I also will show mine opinion. All right, now let's skip down to verse 17. Elihu's still speaking here in verse 17. I said... Elihu said, I will answer also my part. I also will show mine opinion. You know, I studied uh, throughout the, the, the Bible. I didn't read every single verse, but I took my concordance and my ESORD program, and I did a pretty thorough study that took me several days to do, and I could not find one other place in the entire Bible where anybody ever admitted that he was giving his own opinion except Elihu. Elihu was the only person I found in the entire Bible, the youngest guy in the crowd by many years who has lost his temper and he's saying, I'm going to tell you how, what I think about it. All right, let's continue reading. Verse 17, I said, I will show also my part. I will show mine opinion. For I am full of matter. The spirit within me constraineth me. He said, my spirit just forces me to say something. Behold, my belly is as wine which hath no vent. It is ready to burst like new bottles. Now let me explain one more thing to you here right quick. You have to understand that in the Bible, just like in our English language today, sometimes a word can mean one thing in one situation and mean something else in another situation. And the word wine is that way in the Bible. Sometimes when you see the word wine in the Bible... It is speaking about what we commonly think of today as wine, uh, an alcoholic beverage. But other times when the word wine in the Bible is used, it's referring to grape juice. You know, when the Bible talks about a wine press, that doesn't mean they put grapes in a device and pressed them and alcoholic beverage came running out the bottom. It's, it's a wine press, but it's, it's talking about grape juice. 
And this is one of those cases where, and you say, well, how can you tell which, which, what it's referring to? Well, you have to put it in context. You, you, okay, let, let's suppose that we, we all went on a trip. Okay, we went on a trip to, to Europe together, but several of us did. And your pastor and wife went, and, and we're on the bus. And let's suppose we all get on the bus, and we're going on a trip together. And somebody says, let's get off at the next exit up there and get some drinks. Well, I hope that means some water, some Mountain Dew, <laughs> some Dr. Pepper, some Pepsi, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, some orange juice. But let's suppose a, uh, a, 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 a okay, and I'm not criticizing anybody or a particular thing. I'm not against motorcycles or anything. But just for just for an example, you know, let's suppose a motorcycle gang's driving down the highway and they've got their little walkie-talkies on their helmets and one of them says to the guys behind him, hey, guys, let's get off at the next exit up there at Joe's Bar and get some drinks. Well, he used the same word we used. But it means something totally different, I hope, <laughs> than, than what, we, we, what the drinks we're going to get. So sometimes in the Bible, the word wine refers to grape juice. And this is one of those cases where in verse 19, he said, My belly is as wine which hath no vent. It is ready to burst like new bottles. Now, let me explain this. In the, in the, when I see the word bottles, I think of plastic or glass. But in the Bible, they didn't have plastic bottles. They didn't have glass bottles. They had, they somehow, and I don't understand how they did it, but somehow they had leather bottles. They took leather and they could somehow stitch it together and make it, make it to where it would hold liquid. And they would put their grape juice, their wine, in those leather bottles. And if they left it there long enough, it would ferment and it would become an alcoholic beverage. And when, as it was fermenting, it would create some gas and it would begin to move itself. The Bible tells you not to look upon the wine when it moves itself with the bubbles in it. And, and, uh, and, and, and it, this gas, if you didn't vent it, that, that leather bottle would burst. And he says here in verse 19, my belly's like a, like a leather bottle full of new wine. And, and, and he said, I feel like I'm about to burst. Have you ever had a, an opinion about something? And you wanted to give your opinion? And you were just waiting for your chance to give your opinion? You felt like you were going to burst if you didn't get to give your opinion? Are you willing to admit you're as carnal as I am? I've been there before. <laughs> I've, I've felt that way before. And, and okay, we call it getting it off your chest. You, you, ever, you ever heard the phrase "just get it off your chest," or she, she just getting it off her chest, or or he was okay. He was getting it out of his belly. <laughs> that, that's that's that was the terminology he was using to, to ex- express himself. Verse nineteen: Behold, my belly is as wine which hath no vent; it is ready to burst like new bottles. Verse twenty: I will speak. Notice this phrase, and this right here reveals the entire uh, foundation of everything he's saying. I will speak that I may be refreshed. I will open my lips and answer. Have you ever had, a, had, have you ever had something just, you felt like it was, it was just boiling on the inside, and you felt like you just wanted to tell somebody how you felt, and you finally did, and you felt better? But the person listening to you didn't. They now felt as bad as you felt a few minutes ago. 
You transferred your feeling. And this is the only place in the Bible I can find anybody who's willing to admit he's going to give his opinion. And isn't it amazing that he's the youngest guy in the crowd and he's lost his temper and he's so upset he's going to, he even admits the reason I'm going to tell you this is because it'll make me feel better. Have you ever been in a situation where you wanted your opinion to be heard? And I don't mean you just wanted to say it. You wanted somebody to respect your opinion. You wanted somebody to to, uh, uh, appreciate your opinion about something. Well, I've been there before. And so what I did was I uh, taught a series of lessons at our college to the staff. I, 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 uh, back then I was meeting with the staff every morning or, or several times a week. And, and I took one morning a week for about, oh, I think about six months. And I taught a series of lessons on how to get people to respect your opinion. I want my opinion respected. And by the way, the Bible gives us a formula. And if you'll go by this formula, it, it will help people to respect your opinion. Now, in that series I taught the staff, I think I gave them 17 different points, and I never did finish. I think I've got about 23 or 24 points. But don't worry. I know it's Super Bowl night. I'm just going to give you one. <laughs> Maybe two if we get through quick enough, but, but probably just one. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Proverbs. And we're going to begin with Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs chapter 10, if you'll turn there, please. Proverbs chapter 10, I'm going to begin reading, uh, I'm going to read one verse, uh, verse 19. Proverbs 10, 19 says, In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin, or what it's saying is in the multitude of words there is no lack of sin, but he that reframeth his lips is wise. What it's saying is the more you talk, the more likely you are to say something you shouldn't have said. The more you talk, the more likely you are to say something that's sinful the way you said it, or at least the spirit with which you said it, the attitude you had, uh, the the fact that you used it to hurt somebody, the fact that you used it to promote yourself. He's saying the the more chances you have, the, the, the more often you talk, the more chances you have of committing some kind of sin with your tongue. Now, keep that in mind and turn to chapter 17. Proverbs chapter 17 and we're going to look at verse 27. Proverbs 17, 27 says, He that hath knowledge spareth his words, and a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. Now that phrase, he that hath knowledge spareth his words, that's got two meanings that are related. What it means is this, number one, he that hath knowledge spareth his words. What it's saying is, if you're smart enough, you'll keep your mouth shut most of the time. But it's also saying, he that hath knowledge spareth his words. What it's saying is, the guy who really knows what he's talking about, it doesn't take him very many words to explain himself. He that hath knowledge spareth his words, and he that, uh, that and, and a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. Have you ever lost your temper about something? And a few hours later, or a few days later, or a few months later, you found out the rest of the facts, and then you understood what was going on that you did not understand at the moment. 
and you realized you didn't need to get upset after all. When you understand what's going on, it doesn't take you very many words to say it. And you don't have to lose your temper about it. But the youngest guy in the crowd of the five was out of control. Four times his wrath was kindled, it said. And when his wrath got boiling hot and he felt like he was going to burst on the inside, he said, I got to tell you how I feel about this. Go back to verse 27. He that hath knowledge spareth his words, and a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, or doesn't say very much, is counted wise, and he shutteth his lip, and he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. Do you know uh, of a preacher by the name of Dr. Bobby Robertson? Is that name familiar to you at all? He pastors in North Carolina, Walkertown, North Carolina. Has a large church, runs about 3,500 in Sunday schools. Been there over 60 years as the pastor. And I speak for him every year. I have since 1983. And some years speak two or three times throughout the year for him. And uh, I've heard him tell this story several times. He tells a story that when he was a young preacher, he was sitting around the table one day in a restaurant with about a dozen preachers. And most of them were about his age, except there was one man there that was older than all the rest of them. His name was Dr. Harold Seitler. Does that name sound familiar to you at all? He used to have a college and a big church down in Greenville, South Carolina, and was very well respected. And, and they were all sitting around the table eating one day, and they were discussing the fact that this young preacher that was a country preacher from down in Texas who had built a big church had been called to pastor a city, a big city church, a, 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 a church in the middle of a big city up in the northern part of Indiana in a town called Hammond. And they were all discussing whether or not this was going to work. And Brother Bobby says that for about 25 or 30 minutes, every man at the table expressed his opinion about whether or not this was going to work, here's why and here's why it won't and so forth. And they all you know, just, just really just gave all these big elaborate opinions except Harold Seitler. He didn't say a word, just kept right on eating. And finally, one of the young preachers said, Dr. Seitler, you haven't said anything. What do you think? And he said, Dr. Seitler never broke stride, just kept right on eating, just never, never missed a, 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 a spoonful of his food. But in between bites, he just said, if God's in it, it'll work. And just kept right on eating. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? The person that knows what they're talking about, it doesn't take them long to say it. One more place. Turn to chapter 29 and look at verse 11. Chapter 29, verse 11. A fool uttereth all his mind, but a wise man keepeth it in till afterwards. You know, in most situations, I try to say as little as possible. Because the more I say, the more I reveal what I don't know about the situation instead of what I do know. Now, keep that in mind, and we're going to go one, I said one more place in the book of Proverbs. We're going to go one more place. Go to the book, go to the book of Ecclesiastes, the very next book in the Bible, and please turn to chapter 5. This is the last place we're going to look at tonight. Unless I... Go to point two, and I don't think we're going to have time for that tonight. But let, let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we're going to begin in verse 2. Ecclesiastes 5, 2. 
Be not rash with thy mouth. Now, when I think of the word rash, I think of these little red bumps on my skin that itch a lot. <laughs> but that's not what the Bible's talking about here when it says rash. He said, be not rash with thy mouth. Rash means hasty to counsel. Or it means uttered with too much haste. Or it means uttered with too little reflection or thorough thought. And so what it's saying there is, be not rash with your mouth. Don't get in too big of a hurry to give your counsel, your advice, your opinion. Be not rash with thy mouth. And let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. Now, where could you utter something that you would not be before God? But it tells you there, don't say too much before God. Well, it sounds like everywhere I go is what it's talking about. Let's continue reading. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven, and thou upon the earth. You know what it's saying is God's got a better viewpoint than you and I do. When I stand here in this one little spot, and Brother Joe, uh, Brother Vashik uh, explained this morning about the, 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 how vast the universe is and how small the little speck of earth is and how small we are on that little that speck. And, and when I stand here and I look around and see everything that I can see from my vantage point, I'm ready to give you my opinion and tell you what I think's going on. And the Bible is saying, but God's in heaven and he sees everything that is going on and that has gone on and that is going to go on and he has a better opinion of what's going on so I ought to keep my words pretty short. I shouldn't say a whole lot about what I think is happening or should happen or how it should happen because, okay, you remember those of you used to hear Dr. Hiles preach and, and, and others have heard of him, uh, he used to tell a story, and I know some of you remember this story. He used to tell a story that when he was a little boy, he was sitting on the floor in their house, and his mother was sitting in a big red chair, and she had one of those round hoops with a cloth across the top of it. She had that needle with the different colored threads in it, and she was, uh, uh, what do you call it? Embroidering. She was embroidering and, and she was making some kind of a picture and, and, and he was sitting on the floor and he was looking up at it and all he could see was different colored strings hanging out the bottom and they were different colors and different lengths and they were tangled together and, and he said, Mom, what are you doing? It looks like a big mess from down here. And she said, Jackie boy, you just keep right on playing and when I get done, I'll bring you up here and let you see it from my viewpoint. And sure enough, when she finished, she picked him up, put him on her lap, and from her viewpoint, he could see that there was a beautiful picture and there was a pattern on the cloth. She knew what she was doing. She'd been following the pattern. And when she finished, it was a beautiful picture. Like Brother Vastic told us, when God finishes the will of God for you, you're going to love, love it the way, the way it turns out. And what the Bible's telling us is we're looking at it from down here and we're saying God looks like a big mess. And he's saying, will you just wait? Don't say very much right now. You just keep on playing. <laughs> you just keep on living your life. And one of these days I'll bring you up here and let you see it from my viewpoint. Be not rash with thy mouth and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and thou upon the earth. Therefore let thy words be few. 
For a dream cometh through the multitude of business. You ever heard the phrase, a dream come true? You know, we think about, you know, boy, if I could just wish hard enough and wish hard enough and wish hard enough, maybe my dream would come true. But that's not the way it works. The Bible says if your dream's going to come true, it's going to take a multitude of business. <laughs> you ever heard the phrase, the harder I work, the luckier I get? <laughs> if you want your dream to come true, you're going to have to put a lot of work into it. My wife and I were in time, we were at Thomas Edison's home. He wasn't there the day that we were there. But, but we were in his home one day, and, and we were taking a tour of Thomas Edison's home and his laboratory. And his laboratory was on the second floor above his home. And I'll tell you the one thing about that tour that shocked me the most was when they were describing how many times it took him to experiment to get the light bulb right. If you had asked me, I probably would have guessed maybe 20 times. Oh, maybe maybe 100 times. Maybe if I'd have thought about it, maybe, maybe 200 times he had to try before he got that light bulb right. But I was shocked when they explained to us that that laboratory up there on the second floor of that building was about as wide as, as this half of the room. And it was about as long as from the outside doors back there to the, to the baptistry here. And there were workstations all the way down. tossed it out the window. And they said by the time they had experimented with over 10,000 light bulbs, the broken glass had stacked up to the windowsill of the second floor laboratory. It takes a multitude of business for a dream to come true. All right, let's go back to verse, uh, verse 3. For a dream cometh cometh uh, through the multitude of business and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. The more words I say, the more, okay, the more light bulbs they experimented with, the more likely they were to, to, get, to get to where they, they were headed. They were headed to this dream. Can you imagine?
to say this. Point number one on my 23-point outline is if you want somebody to respect your opinion, don't give it very often. Now, I don't know about you, but that is my least favorite point of the 23. Because <laughs> I like to give my opinion. We all enjoy giving our opinion. I tell this often. I hope my wife doesn't mind too much. But we were at home one time, and... Uh, some other night. But let's have every head bowed and every eye closed.